Welcome to I Was Told There'd Be Food, a podcast by grad students Jen and Alex about all things academia and history. How do you get academics to attend anything? You know, I don't know anymore because Thanksgiving was last week and I, I've had enough of food. So what's left? <laughs> what's left? There's nothing left. There's no more reasons to go. No, nope, no. Nope. I mean, education, that's how passe. <laughs> <laughs> well... According to, never mind, we won't go there. No, no, okay. we, we did politics, we did politics last week. We've already week. done politics, we, uh-huh. won't, we won't go there. All right, so how are you doing? Uh, okay, I think. It's, it is that point in the semester, which it passed like two degrees, the point in the semester that we were at a week ago. So I'm just, you keep your head down and the coffee syringe full and you're doing all right. Hmm. Lots of grading. It occurred to me as I did the opening that... I'm not sure I'm really a grad student anymore. I mean, technically, by the university I am until the end of the semester. Right, until like two weeks from now when you graduate. Right. But I did all the things. So it feels weird. Like this limbo, it's it's a really weird thing. And now I get it. Like other friends who I've seen go through it and they were like, am I a doctor yet? Am I not really? And I was like, what is wrong with you? You did all the things. Of course you are. You should feel great. Now that I'm in it, I, I understand. It's a weird limbo-y place to be. So what does the ambivalence look like? I mean, it's, it seems like you're in the transitionary state. You're looking forward. You're looking back. Any major reflections to share with the audience? I don't know. Nothing particularly profound, but... Yesterday, I had to go to campus, and which I'm not going on campus very much anymore. But I remember last year having moments where I walked across campus and, you know, maybe in the fall with the leaves changing or just something about being on campus that day. And it would strike me like, I really love this place and I'm almost done. And that's a weird feeling. And... I expected to feel a lot of sadness and a lot of emotion over that. And yesterday I went onto campus and I was just like, ugh, I don't feel like my place is here anymore. I mean, it wasn't a particularly negative feeling, but I wasn't sad. And I just felt a bit out of sorts. Like, it was all familiar, but not at the same time. Again, that weird limbo feeling. Right. It's in the sense of, is it moving on? Is it something that dissipates into different feelings if you get an academic job? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I don't really know what's going to happen. And, you know, the job front is slow. I mean, most of the things I've applied for, we're not going to get responses until after the new year anyway. So it's not even a, like, it's just a no news is no news situation right now. There's so many, why are there so many things right now that, that put academia and, and higher education in such a precarious position, you have to ask? Do they not know that we're getting close to finals week? <laughs> I think the world doesn't respect that at all. I'm sure the world does not at all respect finals week. <laughs> Fools that they are. I'm sure most people move on from school and try to forget stress of finals week. Yeah, yeah. we could bring, yeah, up, we could bring up all the really depressing statistics like... Um, I think it's 48% of all college graduates never read another book after they finish. Yeah, that one makes me really sad. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, 
I can't imagine not reading. It just opens so many doors. Mm -hmm. Even if you, I mean, even if you don't want to do it to read like nonfiction and learn stuff, I just can't imagine why you don't want the entertainment value of a really well-told story. I, I don't. And I wonder, I mean, it could be, it could be the way that these sort of surveys are asked and it might be that these people do read a lot, just not in the format of books. And how do you evaluate that? But looking, looking forward and also looking at, uh, questions of how you relate to students going forward. I thought of a weird topic this week that I think ties in back with our, uh, one of our originals way back in the syllabus day. And it was a debate that came up at the Chronicle of Higher Ed. I don't, I don't know if you happen to read the one. Um, I didn't read Chronicle, but I, because <laughs> I know what you're about to bring up, I have read a different piece on this. So I was uh, looking at something that was published on Monday. And the title was, Should Laptops Be Banned in Class? An Op-Ed Fires Up the Debate. And the basic idea is re returning to this old idea of technology in the classroom. And should laptops be allowed in lectures? Should laptops be allowed in discussion sections? And it kicked off a bit of a firestorm on the Chronicle. And, and apparently it spread elsewhere onto the internet. Okay, before we go too far, did, you, did she cite the statistics? Like... What I read was there have been a series of new um, studies published on the role of laptops and electronic devices in the classroom. Does she, like, cite those? Mm, from what I can see, no. It is not okay. part of her original op-ed. Okay, so that's interesting because... What I and I'm sorry because I totally forget what I read. It was one of those like was a mainstream media publication, and I can't remember what it was, but um, it detailed some of the results of the new surveys, and it was indicating again that students who take notes by hand have far more retention than students who take notes by laptop by typing in any manner. So, or um, students who take their notes via like dictation software also apparently don't have the same recall of material. So there's more evidence again that the cognitive process of taking in information and writing it down yourself is far more valuable. They don't know exactly why, mm -hmm. but I think it was three independent studies produced the same results very recently. Actually, excuse me, I'm looking again at the sites and they do have a few of the a few of the particular research pieces. In particular, uh, we talked a while back about the, the Mueller piece regarding handwritten notes. She does cite that. Mm -hmm. Right. Well, this is that was one study that kicked off more studies and more studies are backing it up from what I understand. But it does bring up some interesting questions about uh, changes in the classroom in particular and, and thinking about sort of part of our original mission is is discussing the role of the graduate student and certainly helping people to get a better handle on what the role of the graduate student is in the classroom and teaching and education going forward, how it changes. And you've been a big defender in many ways, Jen, of aspects of traditional methods, the lecture in particular. And the laptop debate made me think about how 
Are there any ways that we should be aware as graduate students of inevitable changes brought on by technology, brought on by social changes in the classroom? I think as academics, we have a responsibility to both be cognizant of changes while at the same time not being swept up by change for change's sake. And and I I think I I see sort of the argument being played out at both ends of the spectrum and I really think I fall somewhere in the middle. I don't think that just because technology exists that it's a good thing and it must be progress. But I also, you know, and as that's evidenced by the note-taking um, statistics. On the other hand, I think that there are things um, technology can do, it, but, it, but again, it's kind of, it's all about the user as well. Uh, I think that you could use different forms of media as part of your teaching method or different, I don't know, even a different pedagogy of some type, different methodologies, and you could produce great results. Mm -hmm. But it depends on how you use them. And if you use them poorly, you know, just the presence of technology doesn't, doesn't make things better, I guess is what my point is. Well, and I think it, it plays in in interesting ways with on the technology angle with actual history of technology theory, which I've had to become aware of in recent years. Part of it in the sense that technology is never very much a fixed thing. Often it has material fixed qualities. A computer is a computer. But the ability to use that for innovative ideas is never entirely capped. And I think about there was an article in October from Kevin Gannon, the, the tattooed prof, who has a very interesting pedagogy blog discussing what he thinks should be a ban on technology bans in the classroom, specifically because it, he argues it runs in contrary to inclusivity research on pedagogy. Uh, and there have been a number of other people who have argued in the very recent firestorm about how technology bans in the lecture classroom can single out certain students, like students with learning disabilities who might need technology to get exactly the same equal footing as other students who can take notes by hand in the classroom. Mm -hmm. And I think it speaks to exactly the idea you brought up of you need to be adaptable more than anything else. Right. And I mean, I think that's a very good point. There are, you know, immediately as soon as you say people shouldn't take notes on a computer, but I can't read my handwriting. I do. I did so much better when I could type, et cetera, et cetera. Like you always have somebody even without a learning disability chiming in. And then you also have that level of this perhaps helps somebody who does have a disability that disadvantages them with the note taking, you know, perhaps technology is something that becomes very useful. But here's the thing. There is still some sort of cognitive process that happens when you're taking those notes and they are speculating that what happens is that the student quits processing what's being said because most students who take notes on a laptop just type everything down verbatim. And that's the problem. So how do you get past that? And there are, again, I mean... Every university has student disability services under some name, and I know at our university you can have a provided note taker. You can work with the professor to get permission to record a lecture. I mean, there are so many ways in which universities 
are trying to accommodate each student as they need to be accommodated. Mm -hmm. But those students have to go seek out the help. And I think sometimes that's, that's where the conflict happens. Like sometimes students just want to be able to do it the way they do it without going through a university approved method. And, and I don't, I don't know where I stand on that. I mean, I can kind of understand you want the freedom to make your own choice, but well, this is something. This is something else I've been looking into more recently for um, another group project via my program, thinking about inclusivity as a, a factor in classrooms and wondering about where is the responsibility of the instructor or the professor to try to head off potential inclusivity issues, ableism or anything else in the classroom in their own syllabus, in the structure of their of their content and the way they present it, mm -hmm. prior to needing to worry about a student who has to go to disability services and then come back mm -hmm. with information and, and this sort of a thing. And, and, so, wonder, and so wondering about uh, how much this is something that educators of the near future need to be thinking about. Maybe. But then it also strikes me as something else, too. Uh, you know, you keep using the word inclusivity, but... I mean, we're talking about it in terms of, as you said, ableism, but what about classism? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So by saying that, I mean, in that sense, a ban on laptops is actually more inclusive related to class structures because some people can't afford to have their own laptop computer and are probably relying on the computers on campus. So I don't know. I mean, I'm not sure because there are a lot of people who do just make a choice to take notes by hand, so I'm not certain that they would necessarily stand out in a college classroom because they don't have a computer, but it it could be, right? Like, so mm -hmm. there are so many layers to the idea of inclusivity that I think it's, it's, it's more complex than just, is there going to be a ban or not? Oh, it definitely is. And I think there's a lot of conflict in the literature at the moment about that as well of, it's not just an attempt to level off the playing field, but it's looking at every classroom as a dynamic composition of students with very different needs. And sometimes it's going to be based on class and sometimes it's going to be based on physical or mental ability. And sometimes, and there are so many different factors. Uh, and if the goal is ideally to have a room in which every student feels and can act as if they are equals, I mean, on one, on one end, that's an ideal that I don't know if anybody has really found yet. But I'm wondering, yeah, just this sense of what is the educator of the future's responsibility? So laptops is a good focus for us this week because it's something that a lot of people have talked about. But what are the real expectations of potentially radical pedagogical shift that are, are going to be expected for the next few generations of students in higher education? Presuming we don't all get shut down. I mean, yeah, uh, if we had the answer to that question, I think we'd be, you know, selling a book deal or something right now. Um, Are you hinting at an announcement? Wink, wink, wink. <laughs> no. <laughs> nah, we don't have time for that. <laughs> yeah. Um, I, I mean, I don't know. I mean, I think that there, I think that the radicalism might have to come in in the form of fighting back against the notion that technology for technology's sake is just a good thing. I think that there needs to be some combination of factors. I think that if you're in a class 
that's a discussion section and you open up a laptop, you've already put a barrier in between you and that other person. Interestingly, there's a study that says that if you even have a smartphone sitting on the table between you and another person, it stilts the conversation, even if you're not checking it. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you think about that and apply it to a laptop, which does even provide like a physical barrier between you and another person. We've got a problem there. You, There's no way we could make an argument that that laptop is going to facilitate a conversation between two people, mm-hmm. except people will, because you can look up information in real time and you can, you can bring somebody in who's not there. Okay. Yes. So this is where we have to be adaptable. Could there be an application for it? Yes. Should it be in front of you at all times? Probably not. Well, and I think it also speaks to what is expected of certain disciplines. Whereas in in history and in in the humanities more generally, I think there is a premium placed on the ability to have conversations, to have uh, face-to-face direct interaction between human beings. Whereas I don't know that it necessarily applies in the same way to every other area of, of higher education. Uh, it's more just Wait, my... there's not one size fits all for all aspects of education? I am shocked. Well, you, 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 you might be surprised, <laughs> Madam Recent Recipient have, of PhDs. I, mean, I have heard from, you know, down to lower elementary all the way through with school boards and politicians that there's just the one key thing. We just need the magic bullet. Mm-hmm. Yep. And it, it usually comes in acronyms. Oh, that's true. Mm-hmm. But the sense, the sense of where do we relate to other particular fields? It makes me think, in a broader sense, um, what benefits can higher education get? So this could apply equally, potentially, to every field, but what benefits can be gotten from slowing down something of the pedagogy? I think that's an excellent point. I think that we live in a really, again, the radicalism is doing the thing that's kind of the opposite of what's expected. Right now, we're expected to move fast, cram it all in, go, you know, study all the things, everything all at once, the, you know, Google at your fingertips. Mm-hmm. And, and I don't think that actually helps us deeply learn things and become like, mm-hmm. to be, you cannot become introspective in a hurry. That, mm-hmm. you know, that doesn't make any sense. So I think maybe some of what education is going to have to do is deliberately slow down. It's funny. Um, there's a linguistic joke in there, in that radical comes from Latin root meaning root. (laughs) (laughs) So the sense of, you know, foundations and slowing down and yeah, but I think, I think that all of our fields could benefit a lot from that. And I'm not just saying that because, you know, we're at the end of the semester and professors are behind in the content that they wanted to cover at this point. And so we're all rushing to get to the finish line, Mm -hmm. but just, you know, what is, what is the benefit of, of, not everyone going back to the Socratic method out on the, you know, on the Agaria, but how do you slow things down enough to be able to really wrap your head around new ideas and practices and mm-hmm. know them intimately? I guess that's an outgrowth of the idea of note-taking as well by hand. You get that same experience in a mechanical format. Yeah. So I don't know. I mean, I'm not sure where we're landing other than I think that, I think we're not saying that, Technology is a bad thing. There are many uses. I mean, we're podcasting, and I could see applications for podcasting in teaching. 
Um, I think there are many, many ways that advancement in technology can provide some really interesting ways to teach. On the other hand, I don't think that just because there is technology, it's necessarily great and you throw out all the old methods. Mm-hmm. And I think that there's still a lot of value to those, especially the ones that do make you slow down and make you think, because that's the point of higher ed, right? To give you this space where you get to think and explore. And if we're rushing, we're muting that curiosity and we're denying that time to really fully sit with some difficult concept. We're almost saying don't bother with the difficult, but obviously higher ed is about the hard things. Yeah, it is. It is. I, I do. And on that note, let's go the opposite direction and do some history trivia challenge. Oh, okay. <laughs> oh, I picked an easy one for you today. Don't you worry. Okay. <laughs> All right. I'll start with you. What did Leonardo invent to check humidity while he worked on the Last Supper fresco? Hmm. To check humidity? Mm-hmm. Uh, is it like the name of a common device? Mm-hmm. Uh, hmm. Well, my first thought might have been barometer, but it can't possibly be barometer because Torricelli invented the barometer. Now you're just trying to say stuff you know. Yeah, that's basically answer. all I know. I don't know. What's, what's the term? Hygrometer. Ah, uh, okay. That makes sense. It's an instrument used for measuring water vapor in the atmosphere. Mm-hmm. It was a crude version that was developed by da Vinci, um, like this card says, because of his... He was actually experimenting with a different paint technique on The Last Supper, which is why it actually... It didn't work. Did which it? is why they have so much trouble preserving it. But the more modern version that's more similar to what we still have today was created by johann heinrich lambert in 1755 oh okay i would have expected the hygrometer as an instrument to come more out of that period as well but it's interesting and he did well so what was different between his normal fresco and the version he was using in the last supper um it was the type of paint and like the difference between oils and tempera and experimenting and then the way you make so when you do a fresco um you're not like we think of it as somebody just painted on the wall mm-hmm. and it, it's really not um you're actually painting into the plaster so um part of why he wants to keep track of that humidity is because you need the plaster to stay wet while you're applying the paint and that paint is actually soaking into the wall so a fresco it's actually embedded in the wall it's not on the surface mm-hmm. um, but he was experimenting with the with the paint recipe and it wasn't his most successful experiment but we <laughs> use the painting as very important and so conservationists have had a time trying to preserve that well it's funny too that it ends up one of the most famous works of the artist is is on this tiny little monastery's wall you know just a mm-hmm. back dining hall wall mm-hmm. fantastic to right. think about. okay yeah. so mine i think i think might be easier i'll use the same prefaces you gave me uh what organization elects the 15 judges of the world court 
Ooh. Okay, what organization? Um, I'm just gonna say. I'm trying to decide. Is it the General Assembly or is it the Security Council? You might be I'm... thinking a little too specifically. Oh, so the UN? The UN. Oh. <laughs> See, I assumed it was harder than I knew it was the UN in some capacity, the, the, but I was like, which part? Which part does that? And I this is know. and this is why trivia has, you know, we, we're left to think about longer, more difficult, important questions because I would have imagined it's a particular branch. Like, is it just mm -hmm. the security? No, because it couldn't possibly be left open just to the Security Council, could it? Oh, yeah, could. they like to take control of it. Yeah, I know there's a lot of issues that the Security Council just has uber control over. No, but now I'm left with more detailed questions that I'm going to have to go look up after the show. I know, because I actually have no idea. And I studied the early years of the UN. I don't know the answer to that one. Uh, but you got the trivia question right, so it was well worth it. Congratulations, um, yes. you've earned your doctorate now. Woohoo! <laughs> I would have settled for a cookie. All right. Thanks for joining us this week. You can join the conversation by tweeting us at IWTTBFPod or email us at academicsneedfood at gmail.com. Thanks to Brian Jones for our music. And it's time to go because we, we should, should be, be writing. writing.